How do you like to be introduced? Paul Delaney, Delaney. is yeah. that good? Yeah. Okay. Although I wrote under JGP Delaney because yes. because there's a Paul Delaney in who's my doppelganger. Oh, I He's see. He's a Brit yeah. who lives in British Columbia and writes on the same period, but on literature. So okay. he's written a book about Rupert Brooke. He was out before me, so when I was gonna publish, I couldn't be Paul Delaney, because <laughs> there was another one who yeah. already was in the field, and I've, all, and I've sometimes been mixed up with him. So that meant that I couldn't write under Paul Delaney. So I, I had my, my three names, Joseph, Gerard, Paul. So I wrote under J.G.P. Delaney. Okay. But when that's... I write on Acadian subjects, I write under Paul Delaney. So we are at your home, Paul, in uh, in Moncton, New Brunswick, and uh, the reason that we're together is because of your book, your biography of Charles Ricketts. So first of all, welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. I feel honored. Well, it's so great to be able to talk about Charles Ricketts, who was a, a wonderful book designer, a fine press proprietor, uh, an art aficionado, a writer, maybe you could fill a painter, yes. a sculptor, a theater designer, a man of many, many uh, abilities, and a man who was a total artist. He was an artist, pure and simple. His whole philosophy, his approach, his yeah. attitude. His whole yeah. life was devoted to art, to making it, to collecting it, to encouraging yeah. it, to writing about it. Yeah. His life was, he, he was a, and his feet in the real good sense of the word. What brought you to wanting to write about him? I was actually told to write about him. <laughs> I, when I finished my PhD in Edinburgh, I had worked on 17th century poetry, and I'd done my master's on 17th century poetry and my doctorate on 17th century poetry, so I was fed up with 17th century poetry. Right. I wanted to do something different. And I had friends in, in Edinburgh who were related to Oscar Wilde's friend Robbie Ross, and so I, I mentioned that at dinner party. I, I, I'm looking for a different, totally different subject to write to, to work on. I don't want to write about 17th century poetry. I'm fed up with it. So they said, "Well, you know, our great great uncle Robbie Ross really, we'd love someone to write a biography of him. Would you be interested?" And I said, "Well, yes, it sounds very interesting." And they said, "Well, we'll arrange for you to see the papers." And John Paul Ross was a diplomat, and he was based in Jerusalem. And so he deposited all the Ross papers with Sir Rupert Hart Davis in Yorkshire. And so John Paul wrote to Sir Rupert and said, a young, a young man, I was young at that time, I was 27 or 28, is interested in, in Robbie Ross and he would like to see the papers. Would it be possible for him to visit, visit you and see the papers? And Sir Rupert wrote back and said, yes, of course, but there's nowhere for him to stay locally because we live in a small village. So, so we're gonna invite him to stay with us. Okay, so I went there and uh, they picked me up at the station and at Richmond and then they drove me to the mosque in Swaledale, the little village where they lived, and set me up. And then the first thing almost that Sir Rupert said to me, he said, Paul, I will help you in any way I can, but really you're wasting your time in Robbie Ross. He doesn't deserve a biography. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a bit discouraging as the first thing that was virtually that was said to me. So anyway, yeah. I, uh, every day I was there for more than a week, and every day I was working hard going through all the letters you know, from all kinds of people, Henry James and all kinds of important writers and painters. Mm -hmm. And one day I came across Ricketts' letters and they were so funny and so witty and so erudite and so wicked. I mean, dirty jokes, you know, everything, everything. So he'd go from an extremely learned, you know, discussion of the attribution or the authorship of something, of a painting, and then he would tell a dirty joke <laughs> right after. And I'd roar with laughter and at dinner, 
that evening. I said, oh, uh, Sir Rupert, uh, you know, I'm reading the letters from Charles Ricketts, and they're by far the most interesting of all the letters, from even from famous writers. I mean, nobody comes near him. Yeah. And Sir Rupert jumped up, and he said, now there's a subject for you. There is a man that needs a biography. Write about him. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I tried to do both Robbie and uh, Ricketts together, but it just, Ricketts just won the day. I mean, he was so much more interesting and so much more fun. And it's published by Oxford, right? Is yeah, it? It, yes. the Clarendon Press, yeah. And what year was it published? Oh, oh dear, 1999? I know it's hard to get. It's, it's sold out. Yes, and it hasn't been reprinted. No. They, they, they were very nice. They actually wrote to me and said, Paul, the last copy of your book is on the shelf and we're sending it to you. So I got the last copy. But they only but they didn't want to reprint it. No, I suggested it might be a good yeah. idea to reprint it. Well, I mean, they could sell it. Yeah. It sold, it sold out in just a yeah. few years. But they only printed 800 copies. That's why it's so expensive now. It's because they, they decided it was for a limited market. It was, right. for, it was for collectors. It was for museums and galleries, period. There was a no general interest. But that's odd. I mean, you'd think that a publisher uh, of their stature would uh, be interested in making more money. But they didn't think there was a market. After it sold out in a couple of years? Yeah, yeah. They didn't think that. They thought that the market had, you know, they'd reached the market they, they, had, they had aimed at, and yeah. that, that was it. You know, there was, yeah. uh, there was no need to, sell, to make any more. And when I suggested they do a second edition with corrections and additions and whatever, they wrote back and said, no, we, we've had a, a meeting about it, and we decided it was not, uh, not feasible. That's too bad. So that yeah. was it. Well, they need, to, they need to sit down again and think about it. Yeah, I mean, a lot, there's been a lot of new material since. Huh? It would have to be completely rewritten. Right. Okay. Well, you've still got a few years left. Yeah, yeah but I'm on other subjects now. Okay. I, I'm out of the Ricketts field. With okay. Sir Rupert called the Ricketts racket. I'm out of the Ricketts <laughs> racket. <laughs> he was a great publisher. I love his books. Oh, yeah. He, so and, elegant. Yeah. And, uh, and he was interested in, in quality. Yeah. He wasn't one of those publishers who said, oh, this will sell. He was interested in quality that would sell, if possible. But quality was the first thing for him. I love the colorful, the fox. It's yeah. a fox, right? Yeah. The, yeah. the sort of logo that he used yeah. on his press. Yeah. No, he. I. The book is dedicated to him and to another friend who helped me a lot with the oh, book. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Now Ricketts was born in Geneva, wasn't it? He was born in in, in Switzerland. So uh, maybe we could start there. Well, this is uh, this is something that's completely changed since I wrote the book. Ricketts' mother lied on her marriage certificate. She gave a false identity. And so I didn't think that people, I didn't realize that people lied on official documents. <laughs> so I believed her, even though it didn't make sense. And I say in the book, because she said in her, on her marriage certificate, she was the daughter of Charles uh, Comte de Soucy, Marquis yeah. de Soucy. But there was no Marquis de Soucy. And there was a, there was a Comte de Soucy, and he had a whole bunch of daughters, but they, but I found I, I went to the uh, to the ar military archives in Paris at the Chateau, whatever it's called, the Chateau de Vincennes, and I got his records. And there was one of his one of those cards that are that are printed in France when somebody dies and lists all the the children and the grandchildren. And there was no Hélène Cornelie de Souzy. Okay. Okay. So I thought it, this was the only family that it could have been. Okay, and uh, and she's not mentioned there. There were, one of the ancestors had been a marquis, so it's possible that there was a marquis there somewhere, but it didn't make sense. 
Okay, so my conclusion was that she was illegitimate, and therefore that's why she's not mentioned in the in the list of, of the daughters. That's such a terrible word, isn't it? Illegitimate. Yeah, it is. That but is at that a... time, it was a very damning word. Yes. She was from one of the papal nobility in Rome, and she had been married young to a French architect, and the marriage had not been particularly happy. She had three or four children, and then suddenly she disappeared. She had been left some money by a, a family friend who was a count or something or other, but the lady would never tell me who the count was or how much money it was. But anyway, she was, she was left a monthly income by him, and that enabled her to escape. So she just disappeared. After the birth of her last child, I mean, just a couple of months after the birth of her last child, she disappears. And she turns up in Naples, where Ricketts' father met her. And Ricketts' father was? He was a, 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 a naval officer. British. Yeah. Ricketts were, were sort of gentle, sort of landed gentry. They had made a lot of money in the slave trade in, 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 the, in the West Indies. Ricketts was from a, a son of that family. His father was from that family. So her marriage to to Ricketts' father was bigamous, because she was already married. Was he born in Switzerland or not? Yeah, he was, yeah. Okay. But they were not married at that time. She, he was illegitimate, to use that same word again. <laughs> Ricketts was born in 63. Yeah, and then they moved to England shortly after, yeah. a couple of years after that. I mean, Ricketts always said his mother was French, but she, she wasn't French. She was Italian. But she had this, this was told to me by, the, by this descendant who was, wouldn't give me any sources, but she was able to give me information, but she wouldn't tell me where it came from. Okay. She had had uh, some sort of liaison with a good-looking German waiter in, a, in the Hotel, uh, Hotel d'Alemagne in Rome, and it was considered utterly unsuitable of the papal nobility yeah. to marry this waiter in, in, the, in the restaurant. Her brothers wrote letters saying, this is a disaster for the family, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, she was determined to marry him, but finally they twisted her arm or whatever, and they and she uh, they sent her off to Paris, and then she spent she was about eighteen or something like that at that point, and she was and so she spent the next years in Paris, and there she was married off to this uh, Henri this Henri Suisse his name was, who was an architect, distinguished architect. I mean he's he got, he had the Legion d'honneur, and he's in he's on the web on on wiki uh, wiki. Well, let's move around then to Charles in England as a child, and he. Uh, he was more French than English because, you know, his mother was French and... Uh, his, well, his mother wasn't French, though. Yeah, but she was French culture. And so everybody said he was more European than, than, than English. Did he go to school in, in Europe? Well, he did a little bit. She always had that, that income from the Comte who left her money. Okay. And that was one of the proofs that Mrs., uh, her, her descendant sent me. The last payment was not claimed and she had just died. So it, was, it confirmed that she was the one who was receiving... So he, he, what, he had sort of a traditional education then in, in England and maybe a bit on the continent, is that well, it? No, I think he, had, he, he was uh, partly privately educated. He went to a school in France for a, for a time. She got sick, Mrs., Mrs. Ricketts got sick, and so they went to live in France, and uh, he had a governess when he was in France. And then uh, he, uh, they went to Italy, okay. and then she died on their way to Rome. When he was how old? He, he, uh, he was about 10 or 11. So then he went back to England to live with his father? Yeah, but his, his, father, uh, was, his father went bankrupt at some point. I didn't know that at the time I wrote the book. I only discovered this later. So 
I discovered it after COVID, so I can't get to England to do more research into it mm. at the, because of COVID. So he actually spent most of most of the time in England with his grandfather, uh, who, whom he adored, who was a, who collected paintings and was a. He obviously got on much better with his grandfather than his father. He said, "I have nothing in common with my father but our name." Uh-huh. He, he was much closer to his mother, but he his his grandfather was a very sweet man. Obviously, everybody loved him, and he got on very well with his grandfather. So it must have been obviously devastating for a ten-year-old to have his mother die. On him. Yeah, they were on their way to Rome. Obviously, she was going to reunite with her family to you know because she had brothers and sisters in Rome. So she was leaving the husband. Or no, no, they went together. The, Okay. She wasn't expected to die. She just died on the way. They were right. on, their, on their way to Rome. Okay. She had cancer. Okay, so the grandfather obviously molded this young yeah. boy's yeah. character. Although I don't think it needed molding. I think he, he pretty he had pretty much of a character. <laughs> from, right. from, he was very much himself. From you know, he he was never he was not molded. He 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 was himself. Okay. His grandfather helped him along and left him a bit of money, you know, and, but he was very close to his grandfather. He loved his grandfather, obviously. Did he go to art school? He, yes, he did. When he was uh, 15 or 16, he went to art school. He was younger than he was supposed to, but uh, that's where he went to uh, a school, an art school in South London in the wood engraving uh, school. Yes. Yeah, that's how he started. Then he moved into other subjects, but started off as a wood engraver. And he, uh, he then marketed his services as a wood well, he did a, artist? He did, well, in those days they did a lot of these, uh, uh, I can't remember what they're called, but they're sort of lino illustrations. Yeah, uh, for magazines? Yeah. yeah, so he did a lot of those. Yeah. He did okay. woodcuts also, but he also did a lot of those. So he set up as a freelancer? Well, he was a young young artist, you know, on on the go, trying to get jobs here and yeah, there, and yeah. getting whatever he could get to, to work. And yeah. he'd he'd already hooked up with Shannon at that point. Ah, okay. So let's introduce him. That's Charles Shannon, and he was also an was, artist. He was at the same school, art school, and uh, they met uh, supposedly uh, at at I think it was Ricketts' fifteenth uh, birthday party, but. Uh, there's a, a writer in, in London who's Canadian, actually, but who's, who lives in London now, and she wrote to me recently, and she doesn't think that's, uh, that's true. They, they, she, thinks that, she thinks they were older when they met, but Sturge Moore, who was a close friend all their lives, he's the one who said they met at Rick's 15th birthday party. So these two, there's an interesting relationship that they have. Perhaps. Difficult to figure out. Well, that's it, because you're suggesting that uh, that Shannon may well have been heterosexual and and Ricketts homosexual. Do you think, or it's hard to sort of classify them? But Ricketts was basically homosexual. Yeah, and Shannon might have gone through a homosexual phase, or maybe he was fascinated by Ricketts as a young man. As yeah. a young man, had yeah. there are a lot of because he had a, a powerful, charismatic personality. He did, yes, yeah, and. Uh, he was very witty and clever with words and, and fun to be with, but he was very unstable underneath. He needed a, an anchor to hold him down, and Shannon became that anchor. And but, you know, Shannon was definitely heterosexual, at least most heterosexual. Uh, if you look at his work, his pic- depiction of the f- female nudes in his lithographs and drawings is so sensual. He, he loved the female body, and a lot of his subjects are mothers and children, or a father, mother and father and children. It's, to me, it, it represents a kind of longing for something that he could not enjoy. Could not or would not? 
Well, that's the problem. According to, I can't remember who told me this, but uh, someone who was close to the, someone who was a member of the family that was close to Ricketts, I think it was Riette Sturge Moore, that Shun had tried to get married twice, and both times Ricketts was able to persuade him not to get married. But he had relationships with his female model, Shannon did. So the, the two then, the two men moved in together? Yep, and they lived together all their lives. Uh, later on, Shannon fell when he was hanging a picture and damaged his brain. Yeah, it's tragic. And, and he was a bit of a, not, was he a vegetable or? Yeah, he was not quite a vegetable. He could still draw very badly and he still had, you know, some, but he became extremely hostile to Ricketts. And Ricketts still took care of him? Yep. But he's expressing this frustration that he'd had over the years. Is yes, I think, I think that's just by chance at a dinner party. I met a psychiatrist, and, and I just mentioned that question. Yeah. And he asked me just to fill in the details, and he said, well, that's very typical. When someone's brain is damaged, they lose their inhibitions. And he was, he was probably expressing frustrations and anger at Ricketts for having stopped him from doing things that he had wanted to do. But he wasn't a strong enough personality to do it. Yeah. Or he couldn't, he knew how much Ricketts depended on him and he couldn't, he couldn't abandon him. I see. I think that he, that Shannon knew that Ricketts would fall to pieces if yeah. he left. Yeah. And, and also, uh, Riette Serge Moore had said one of the reasons that Ricketts was able to stop Shannon from getting married but was saying, well, how can we divide our collection if you leave and, and we have to divide our collection? But I always thought, well, if Shannon really wanted to get married, he would have said to Ricketts, you keep the collection. I don't mind. I just want. I want to get married. But it's. It, it couldn't have been that strong a need. Uh, otherwise, he would have said, "No, okay, keep the collection. I don't mind." Yeah. Okay. So, uh, when does uh, Ricketts get into illustrating books? That's how we started. Yes. So, when did that happen? And what are some of the books that that he perhaps is best known for? The most famous books by Oscar Wilde are The Sphinx, which yeah. Ricketts designed. And, and Salome, is that? Which Aubrey Beardsley designed. But Beardsley's drawings were outrageous and provocative and sexy, and they stole all the limelight. Okay, Whereas Ricketts, who, who designed The Sphinx, and he designed almost all the, of, of the other books by, by Wilde. By that, you mean he did the actual covers? He did the covers, he? yeah. But he also did the illustrations within? He designed sometimes the title page. House of Pomegranates, Shannon did the illustrations. Ricketts did the cover, Shannon did the illustrations. Yeah. But most of them, it's just the cover that he designed or, and the title page sometimes. And often those covers are a gold leaf too. They're... Yeah. And then uh, he decided he wanted to set up his own press. Yes. And, and he, he was introduced by Rothenstein to Llewellyn Haken, who was a, a barrister who had never practiced because he had inherited money and so he never need, needed to work. And uh, he was willing to invest money in Ricketts' uh, firm, so it became the Vale Press, which was Haken and Ricketts. And that enabled Ricketts to start designing books. He designed the fonts, he designed the woodcut illustrations, he did the page layout, but he didn't print them. They were printed at the Valentine Press. Is that up in Edinburgh? You know, they think there was a branch in London. He supervised the printing, but they, but they were not printed by, by him. In a sense, they're not a bona fide private press. He didn't do the printing himself. He no. oversaw the printing. Yeah. Well, it is, it is classified as a private press, the Vale Press. Yes, I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But by a strict definition, maybe it wasn't. A... So what, what does the output of that press look like? 
There was Shakespeare, the full run of Shakespeare. Yeah. They were meant to be the classics, you know, the, the Romantic poets, uh, Keats, uh, and uh, the 17th century poets. They were not meant to be, you know, new, new work, except for, except for Michael Field, the two ladies that wrote under the name Michael Field. These were good, good friends of Shannon and Ricketts, right? Absolutely, dear, dear friends, yeah. And who were they? Catherine Bradley and, and her niece, Edith Cooper. And they were two women who were also devoted to writing, but they felt that as women writers, they would not be taken seriously. So they invented the nom de plume of Michael Field. And their first book was received very well as Michael Field. Nobody knew they were two women. When the news leaked out, they never got the same recognition in their subsequent works once it was known they were two women. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah. They wrote uh, poetry and plays. And Ricketts published four, three, or three or four of their works. With the Vale Press. With the Vale Press, yeah. Most of the authors he published were dead. They were, yes. they were the classics. So he didn't have to pay any royalties. No, no. Yeah. Some of the illustrations in the Vale Press were done by Thomas Sturge Moore, their friend, who was also a wood engraver. Okay. Now, the Vale Press, the Vale was the name of their house, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yeah. And where was that located? It was in Chelsea. It's, there's still a street called the Vale, but it's no longer the same street. It, it, it was, the Vale at the time was a little enclave of, 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 of early 18th century houses, and they lived in number two, the Vale. Was Whistler interested in that house? Whistler or? had lived there previously. I thought so. They okay. took, List, Whistler had lived there for four years, and they took over the lease from Whistler. And when they left to move to, to Beaufort Street, uh, Haken, with his partner, took over the lease. Because it's, it's quite a lovely house, right? Yeah, it was. It was, I think, a little bit dilapidated, but it was, you know, in a, in a very quiet corner. Now the Vale is a big street, and it's all big terraced houses, but it's not the same at all as it was. The pictures of the Vale show a little enclave, dead-end street with uh, at least three or four houses in it. And, of course, it was filled with their art. Yeah, tell with their me, collection, mostly. Yeah. yeah, so can you tell me a bit about how that, what excited them? To collect, I, I think they were just. Uh, I mean, art for Ricketts, art was everything. That's what he lived for. So he did it. He painted. He did sculpture. He did book design. He did all kinds of things, and he collected it and he wrote about it. I mean, it was art for him was everything. Shannon sort of followed in his footsteps, but Gordon Bottomley, uh, one of their close friends, an author, an author that they designed covers for. Yes, he said if Shannon, if Ricketts had never met Shannon, he would have been Ricketts. If Shannon had never met Ricketts, he would have had a totally different life. Uh, Shannon had been much sort of influenced by Ricketts, and, and he was the more dominant partner, although he was not the stronger. He was the dominant partner, but not the stronger partner, almost like a contradiction. Shannon had grown up in a parsonage. His father was a vicar. It was a very stable, you know, he had many brothers and sisters. It was a very stable background. Ricketts had been moved from place to place. I suspect strongly, I don't know for sure, but I suspect strongly that the English upper class can sniff out a fake. And I think they sniffed out there was something wrong with Ricketts' mother. Because there's an incident where she stays in London and Ricketts and his father and his sister are visiting their grandfather on the Isle of Wight. But Ricketts' mother doesn't go with them. She, sta she stays in London. So I suspect that the women of the Ricketts family had figured out that there was something wrong with Mrs. Ricketts. I mean, she wasn't a fake. She was an aristocrat. She was a noble. Yes. But she wasn't the daughter of the Marquis de Suzy. She was the daughter of a very, a very important judge in the papal court who was noble, although not titled. 
you know, if you if you read the, the her baptismal record, her her father is illustrime, illustrissime. You know, there's a whole series of titles before his name. I mean, he was noble. It was a noble family. So yeah. So why the hell would she lie about it then? Oh, I don't think she wanted to be caught. I mean, she was on the run from her husband. Her husband was looking for her. He spent a lot of time trying to find her. Okay, because right. she uh, sounds like a, a fantastic. Oh, she was woman. a character. She was a character yeah, for sure. Yeah. But she That's was where he gets it from. <laughs> yeah, she was on the run for sure. Yeah. And uh, Mr. Suisse was, you know, was was doing everything to try to find her. And in yeah. fact, he did find her. And she had children. I mean, she had four or five children that were living by her first husband. Okay. Uh, you know, so they, they were deprived of the mother. And I, as I said, her her latest, her youngest child was only a few months old when she disappeared. You know, she just had it a few months before. And Mr. Suisse was he was much older than she was, and he was not at all happy about having been abandoned. <laughs> Just getting back to the, the collecting then, what was the plan behind that? What motivated them to collect, and what did they go after? Do you, I know they loved Japanese. Japanese prints. This was a time when you could go to a junk shop and prowl through the junk shop, and you'd find a Rossetti drawing, or you'd find an original Rembrandt or something, okay? Now all these collections are poured over, but at that time... You could find masterpieces in these collections. And they did. And they did. And they found quite a few for yes. not much money. Yeah, like for peanuts, yeah, sometimes. And they would go to auctions, and, and they would usually miss, but occasionally they would get things at auctions. And they would go without meals in the early days. They would go without meals in order to buy works of art. They were, they were utterly sincere. There was nothing fake about it. It was utterly their, their meaning of life. Art was their, the, what, what was important in life, and they were devoted to it in every respect. So it wasn't to show off or to, you know, to, to impress people. I, I remember asking somebody, why would somebody spend a million dollars for a Liechtenstein painting mm. when for a million dollars you, you can buy a minor old master, which has stood the test of time, you know? Yeah. And if you spend a million dollars for a living artist or a recent artist, you know, it can go down. Yeah. Well, so if you buy if you buy an Italian artist of the 17th century for a million dollars, you're getting a major artist who's not going to go down. Mm-hmm. And I, I could never understand why would would anybody pay a million dollars for for a modern for a Warhol or for a modern artist, yeah. which hasn't stood the, the test of time. And I never got a proper answer until someone said to me, they wanted to show it to their friends. Bragging rights. Yeah, I can, and they know that's a million dollar painting. It's an ostentatious yeah. display of wealth. Yeah. Whereas in Rickus and Shannon's case, there was nothing of that. I mean, they yeah. weren't. Out they to, didn't have wealth. They were not well, yeah. that well off. Yeah. And so they were buying because they loved it and it meant everything to them. So with th- in Rickus' time, you could really. You could find masterpiece. They found a Rossetti in a junk shop, you know, mm-hmm. important Rossetti. Yes, so they hung on to everything they bought. I think they might have been willing to sell something to get something better. Yeah. Okay. You know, they might have been willing to improve their collection. But they were not there to sell. It was not an ever, investment was never part of it. They were, they were interested in value. They were not going to pay too much for something. Rickards had never spent too much for a painting. He had a prodigious knowledge of... In, and unbelievable. One of the reasons it took me 13 years to write the book was because Rickards knew about everything. He knew about Japanese prints. He knew about classical pots, Greek pots. He knew about painting. He knew about sculpture. He knew about everything. So I had a do some investigation at every one of those fields in order you know, to, to, to get it right. And even then, I was having trouble finishing. And the other person to whom the book is dedicated, uh, an artist called George Warner Allen, uh, he, he adored Ricketts. 
and he'd always adored Ricketts. He was a classical painter in, at a time when classical painters were considered to be you know, long dead. And so he enabled me to finish the book because he would say, Paul, you can't say that about technical things in painting. You know, This is wrong. You can't say that. And you have to say this a little bit differently. So he was able to go through the book and say, you know, this is what you can say, this is what you can't say. And then it enabled me to finish the book because I was stuck because I, I thought I, I don't know enough about the actual technical side of painting to know whether I, what I'm saying is, is good sense or whether I'm saying something which is utterly ridiculous. Yeah. So he cleaned it up for me. And so the person who started me was Rupert R. Davis and the person who helped me finish was George Rowan Allen. So they got the two dedications of the book. <laughs> Ricketts outlives Shannon by quite a bit. Uh, is that right? By three years. Okay, well, maybe I'm thinking that Shannon is just sort of out of the picture because of his, his uh, accident. Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't remember now. I think Ricketts, I think the accident was, was in 33 or 36. I can't remember at the moment. Oh, okay, and Ricketts lived until... 39. Now, there is a connection with the National Gallery of Canada. Can you talk a bit about that? It was not a happy relationship. Some people later considered it a disastrous relationship because at a time when the Impressionists were selling for nothing, Ricketts was buying classical paintings. Michelangelo and, 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 the, and the great artists were no longer available, so it was, yeah. it was uh, still he got, you know, he would get portraits by some of the great artists, but subject pictures by the great artists were out of his reach. He was, a, he, yeah, he was hired. To uh, advise the National Gallery account on purchases. During, now, this was during the 30s? In the last years of his life, yeah, the 30s. I mean, yeah. It started in the 20s, because I, I I'm a little bit rusty, but I think it was 11 years he was on that job. He Who was, fired him, was it? Brown. Director, yeah. he was not going to advise on impressionists or post-impressionists or anything like that, so he wouldn't he wouldn't touch those. Okay, so he was advising them to buy portraits by the by some of the greats like Titian, or subject pictures by the second tier of Italian artists. He he bought important pictures for the collection, but this was a time when impressionists were selling for nothing, so he could have bought Monets and Manets and Renoirs and all kinds of pictures for almost nothing. He wouldn't buy them. Because they were too recent and yeah, they he, weren't he didn't like them. tested. He didn't like open air painting. He didn't like, although when he went to the, to, the, to the Metropolitan in New York and he saw a whole wall of Monet's, he had to admit they were better than he thought. But he was not going to, when you had a choice between Italian painting and, and, and a French impressionist or a post-impressionist, he hated Cezanne. He, wasn't going to, he was never going to buy Cezanne. He said Cezanne was so interested in his work that he used to leave them in the fields when he finished painting. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he kept painting that one damn mountain in the 50 or... Mont-Saint-Vitoire. So just after I came home, uh, I was in the Moncton Library and, and I was looking through some art journals and there was a, an article about the National Gallery of Canada, its history of its collecting, you know, and yeah. so I read it with great interest and it... And it said, so the, the disastrous period when Charles Ricketts advised the National Gallery of Canada. <laughs> and I thought, why was it disastrous? But then I realized, of course, because That's he could have was. bought all those Impressionist paintings, yeah. but he wouldn't, he wouldn't buy them. And it, he was the main guy. Yeah. There weren't other people directing this. It was... He had, I think he had to get Brown's permission and the committee, whatever. But, I mean, they usually followed his, his suggestions. But you couldn't ask Ricketts to do something against his... His gray, as they say in French, against his instincts or against... He had very good instincts, but they weren't instincts for, for anything modern. <laughs> it wasn't that there would be an outcry in Canada if he had bought an no, Impressionist. No, but, he, but he'd no. hate it. he hated an Impressionist. And right. he hated a post-Impressionist even more. 
Plus, during the 30s, obviously, you know, money is pretty thin, and uh, so the, anything that they bought might be criticized. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, I'm sure today a lot of people regret that Ricketts didn't buy the Impressionist. I've seen that wall of, of Impressionists in the Metropolitan. Boston has a beautiful collection. Too. Yeah, I've seen that too. And as I say, even Ricketts, when he saw that, he had he had to admit in his diary that Monet was far better than he had given him credit for being. We talked about the fact that Ricketts was his own character, was his mm-hmm. own personality. Uh, I wonder what impact that period had on him. The fact that uh, that there was there was such a lively society that he lived in the 1890s uh, yeah. there was uh, there were a lot of ferment and he, he was just at the time in this, the Goncourt brothers you know were, were, were also devoted to art and kind of example Ricketts was good friend good friends with Wilde was really impressed with Ricketts oh he was yeah because Ricketts was so witty well knew witty yeah 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 when he went one time to visit them with a friend and Shannon answered the door, and Ricketts was out, and they they spent some time with Fred, with Shannon. When they left, Rick, uh, Wilde said to his friend, "That was the wrong one." Yes. <laughs> Shannon was fun; he was nice, but he was much more gentle and quiet. He wasn't the, the firecracker and and sparkly wit that that, uh, that that Ricketts was. Ricketts had a way with words that was very very clever. What are your favorite Ricketts stories? I, I mean, I remember some of his jokes. I you know one of one of the ones. The, I mean, it's a bit vulgar, I'm That's sorry. That's fine, good. He said, in one of his letters that I was reading at, at, at Sir Rupert Hart Davis's, uh, it, there was a disquisition on some sort of attribution of a painting, and they're very learned, you know, and or some, some discussion of a Greek pot or something like that. And then he said, did you hear that Lord so-and-so had married a woman that was 30 years his, 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 his junior? I guess he's going to dig his grave with his brick. That's typical of Ricketts. I mean, yes. a, a learned from high to low. Yeah, yeah, with a vulgar joke, with a vulgar word. But it, it was such a shock, you know, going from one to the other. Yes. It, I just roared with laughter. I thought it was so funny. Well, this, there, there are quite a number of these close to being belly laughs in your book, really, because of the quotes that you throw. Yeah, in. yeah. But I love yeah. that side of Ricketts. Yes. I love the side that he could be, he could be very high end intellectual and at the same time he could yeah. tell a dirty joke right in the next line i i, I just i, I love that, that too i thought that yeah. was wonderful it just shows you that he yeah, he's so very intelligent but he doesn't take it entirely seriously he's yeah. not yeah he's able to, to go there he took his art seriously but he but he said that's not all you know but he was also as you said very sensitive and and he was a pure artist shannon and ricketts were never properly trained as painters they got the training as the wood as wood engravers, and, yeah. uh, and and then uh, Shannon sort of was self-taught as a painter, and they had technical problems. They they used too much linseed oil in their painting, and so their paintings have darkened a lot, and it's inside the paint, so you can, it's not like like a, a cover which you can you can remove. They it, can't it's clean it inside yeah. the paint itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ricketts, uh, his anatomy <laughs> is sometimes a bit strange. <laughs> I, my painting upstairs, it's uh, it's it's Andromeda. And she has a she's a, she's in a position. Her body's in a position that nobody could go into. <laughs> but, uh, no, Ricketts. He was such an original. He was himself. You know, that's what I loved about him. He was himself. He didn't mind being highly intellectual and and really serious. And then he didn't mind you know telling a dirty joke. I mean, it was just I love that. <laughs> that's what I find so fascinating about him.
But he also had a wonderful way with words. He could, you know, he was very, very clever with words. And he did write. He wrote criticism. He wrote. Yeah, he, he, he on wrote the Prado. Was it? Yeah, he wrote a book on the Prado. He wrote a book on Titian. Yeah. He wrote uh, Pages on Art, was a collection of his essays. He, he wrote uh, Re Recollections of Oscar Wilde, which, yeah. he, which he wrote and did a beautiful cover for. And he also did a, a book of his, I uh, can't remember the title, Unrecorded Histories, which is a book of his short stories. No, he, could, he was very good. He could turn his hand at anything. He was deeply an artist. I mean, he was a real artist in every sense of the word. But he was basically fragile. You know, he had such an unstable youth, his mother dying young, his father died when he was very young too. His father only outlived his mother by a few years. So he'd lost both his parents. By the time he'd gone to art school, both his parents were dead. And, uh, you know, and he, he had grown up partly in England, partly in France. You know, he'd, they'd been moving around. Uh, so he, he had a very unstable childhood, I suspect, because he had a great grudge against the Ricketts family. Because of the way they treated his mother? I suspect. But as I said, I think they suspected she was, she was, she was not right. She wasn't a French aristocrat. No. She wasn't the daughter of the, of the Comte de Soucy, as she, said, as she claimed to be. But she, but she could have been a pauper, you know, but she wasn't. She was actually a noblewoman from Italy, from a distinguished family. Her father was a, an important person, a friend of the Pope, yeah. personal friend of the Pope, and, and the head of one of, his, of one of the papal courts. I mean, he was, and there were whole generations of, 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 of papal judges and whatever in that family. So, you know, they, they, were, they were aristocrats. They weren't titled nobility, but they were nobles. So she wasn't a fake in that sense. She wasn't a fake noble, but she was a fake French noble. <laughs> and I think in, in, in the upper crust, they, they can sniff that out right away. I mean, it's yeah, but the thing is, they're sniffing out the fact that she's an Italian noble instead of a French but noble. But I don't think she said, I don't think she revealed she was an Italian noble. So they thought she was a commoner. Yeah, yeah. they thought she was a fake, I suspect. Yeah. Although she said, one of the surprises, in, she's in the census, I think the 61, I can't remember what, 71? No, she was... I think it's 71 census. And it says she was born in Rome. Well, I always thought she was born in Paris, you know, so that was a surprise to me. But it actually says she was born in Rome, which is true. That's where she was really born. That's when she's, she's in London, and her husband and her two kids are in the Isle of Wight with the Ricketts family. And they've frozen her out. Yeah, I suspect. Why wouldn't she be with her? Yeah. But, and it would have been the women. I, I don't think Ricketts' grandfather would have cared two bits about whether she was a fake Italian or a fake French. But I suspect the women. The women are or the snobs in the family very often, and I think the women of the family probably said she's not right, there's something wrong about her when she's a fake and whatever. Yeah. And since she didn't want to reveal who she really was, because she had a husband, she would have been revealed to be bigamous. If, if, her, if Monsieur Suisse yes. had yeah. ever turned up on the scene, he would have said, she's my wife, she's married to me, and we've yeah. never been divorced, so yeah. she is bigamous. That's scandalous. That would have been even worse. <laughs> you know? yes. So she was caught, she couldn't, she couldn't reveal who she really was. Yeah. But she was, I suspect she was spotted as a fake. So writing this biography... Put me in a hospital. <laughs> because it was so difficult? Because I invested so much of myself in it. Because it was a passion for me. It wasn't just a subject that I was interested in. It was a passion. What do you mean? Well, I was totally, I was totally immersed in it. You know, I, it, it, I, I, sort of, I, wasn't, I never thought I was Rickers or identified with Rickers, but it became a kind of passion. Obsession to do what? To write the book. No, but to do what with the book? Publish it. No, but I mean, <laughs> in the book itself, what what was your to objective? Under, to understand Ricketts and make him understood. You you had difficulty doing that. No, I didn't have difficulty that part. I had I had difficulty 
with the technical part of painting and, and you know things that I, I had see. never been trained and in and I had to write about, which, which was very difficult. But my friend George helped me deal with that. I see. But then when I finished the book, trying to get it published, trying Ricketts, to find a publisher. Yeah, Ricketts was not a well-known name, and, and you know many most English people, even those interested in art, would have said Charles who. The people who knew about Ricketts were people interested in theater design, private presses, people interested in book design people interested in in the 90s and Oscar Wilde, they knew the name of Charles Ricketts. But outside of that small group, not many people knew. I had uh, a good friend uh, who was a publisher. He wasn't the publisher of that sort of book, but... What's his name? Peter Day. Oh, yes. You knew Peter Day? I didn't know him. I, I know, definitely know the name. Oh, he was a character, Peter. <laughs> a real character. Anyway, he had a good friend, who Carolyn Donne, who was uh, an agent. Carolyn Donne. She, she was an, a very good agent and a good friend of Peter's, and, and I knew her socially. I had met her many times. And so she took me on as a charity case uh, uh, to, to sell my book. So she's the one who got it published by Oxford University Press. Okay? It was she who, uh, who hawked it around, as it were. I immediately, I had a, had a sort of breakdown, unfortunately, and I ended up with Crohn's disease. After? No, during, during the time that I, between the time I finished and the time I got it published. I had many people telling me, oh, you'll never get that book published. Nobody's interested in Charles Ricketts. And people, a lot of people are very negative about it, you know, and I devoted 13 years of my life to it. So, and no it become, wonder. And it became a passion with me. And then it looked as if it was all for naught, you know, and so I ended up getting Crohn's disease and ended up in hospital. And, but uh, eventually, and as soon as the book had published, the Crohn's disease disappeared. <laughs> and I've been in remission for 30-some years. <laughs> So I got quite sick over it, but I, I invested too much of myself in it. It wasn't just a project I was doing. It was something that became a passion, you know, something I, I wanted. More than a passion, an obsession. I, I wanted to explain Ricketts to the world. I wanted to clear up some of the false ideas, you know, especially the sort of glib reference to them as a gay couple. They weren't in any sense, of modern sense, a gay couple. They were a couple. They might have had sexual contact for a while. But I don't think it was ever a very important part of Shannon's relationship with Ricketts anyway. It, might, it was probably more important for Ricketts than for Shannon. It, it never continued in their relationship. It was their devotion to art, yes. to collecting, to making. Well, they probably loved going out and searching for yeah, yeah, they stuff did, uh, yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, they did, that yeah, yeah. was a bond. Yeah. And uh, so I, was, I wanted to correct some of the mis misconceptions about Ricketts and Shannon, and I wanted to explain. I felt I had a explain Ricketts to the world in a sense. Which is obviously, I mean, when you've got someone who's as complex and accomplished as that. Oh, it was a challenge. Yes. I learned, it was like an education. I learned so much about everything. As I said, what really got me stuck was the technical side of painting. And my friend George, who had loved Ricketts, all, he'd never met Ricketts, but he'd yeah. loved Ricketts all through the time and everybody thought Ricketts was nothing. And yes. he was a third-rate artist. And that reminds me, of a terrible story, which I will tell you. Cecil Lewis, one of Ricketts' last protégés, he yeah. was a, a war hero, he was a pilot in the First World War. Okay. He was very tall and very good looking, and Ricketts was obviously in love with him. For and a long time, or? In the last years, yeah. Okay. And, and Ricketts, had, uh, Ricketts gave him the money to buy a, a house in, in Italy. Cecil had gone to Italy and uh, had made a tour of the Lake District in the north and came back saying how wonderful it was and how easy it was for him to work there. And, and Ricketts said, well, I'll give you the money to buy a house on, on Lake, uh, Lago Maggiore. So Ricketts gave him the money and he bought this house. And that's where Ricketts' ashes were, were deposited in the end. In the garden? In the garden of that villa. 
which I visited with great difficulty. I was, uh, that's quite a story, quite a saga, how I got to see that. It, anyway, there's a photo of it in the book, which I took. Apparently it's not there anymore. The, they took the, some later owner of the house, removed the, the monument to Ricketts, I heard. Anyway, so I met Cecil years later, and he was, he was scathing. He said, why are you spending so much of your life on Charles Ricketts, a third-rate artist? I thought, how ungrateful to call Ricketts a third-rate artist. After he bought you a damn house. Yes. Or a villa. Yes. In and, Italy. Yeah, and so he said, he said, I don't really agree with this idea of get, sniffing all his underwear and counting all his, his, paper, his uh, laundry checks and all that. I thought, what an ungrateful man to talk that I talked about Ricketts that way. But he, uh, I mean, I know what he was trying to do is he was trying to say, publish the book, you know, don't spend all your life working on Ricketts, get on with your life and publish your book. But to call Ricketts a third-rate artist, I, was, I thought that was very shocking. Cecil was still alive when he, I published the book. I had to be very careful what I said about Cecil. Uh, and in fact, later on, a friend of mine bought a, a nude drawing and I had I had illustrated the drawing in my book, and it's I say said to be Charles said to be Cecil Lewis just, just to be careful Cecil Lewis the new drawing was of Cecil Lewis I see okay said to be because I didn't know for sure but a friend of mine later bought the actual drawing and on the back of the drawing it says clearly in Ricketts hand Cecil Lewis or it, you know there's no doubt but yeah. I didn't see that I didn't know that at the time so I cover myself I said said to be Cecil yes. Lewis anyway so <clears throat> I published the book finally and Cecil was still alive when I published it. He wrote me a nice letter, and he said, "I don't agree. I don't agree with everything you said, but I'm very glad you published the book." Blah, blah, blah. So he wrote me a nice letter, but uh, he didn't want to talk about Ricketts' sexual side at all. I mean, he didn't. That was he was extremely heterosexual, Cecil Lewis. He wasn't, you know, he, there was, that, that side didn't interest him. Although, yeah, although well, he, he benefited from it. Although well, he, yeah, maybe he played the game a little bit yeah. to the point where where he he got a house out of it. Well, he'd been he'd been a little bit cruel to Ricketts because Ricketts. Yeah. He and Ricketts went on a holiday together in North Africa. Oh, right. And I think that Cecil Lewis sort of got a little bit antsy to be in such close contact to a yes. man who was obviously in love with him. And so he took up with a German widow, a German divorcee or something like that. And he left Ricketts alone for almost all of the trip. But he was running around with, with these women that he picked up. And so it was a pretty disastrous trip for Ricketts, who had paid for it. I mean, Cecil told me he, he felt threatened by it. And, you know, and he sort of felt the need to sort of prove his heterosexuality and anyway, for poor Ricketts, it was a terrible disaster because he was alone the whole time. It sounds like a pretty sad ending for Charles. Oh, I think the late last years were, were tragic for him. Yeah. The man he loved the most in life, Shannon, was hostile to him. Yes. So he had to look after him but avoid upsetting him, so avoid seeing him. You know, so he was doing, even selling part of his collection, he was prepared to sell the whole collection to look after Shannon. So he sold part of his collection to raise money to, to have a nurse, a constant companion for Shannon. Even under the terrible circumstances of Shannon's hostility, he remained faithful to Shannon and looked after him and didn't disown him, which he could have done. Well, he might have if, if Lewis had, had given him the green light, he might have. Yeah, although I don't, I don't think so. I don't, no. I, I, I don't know of any affairs that Ricketts had. I know that Shannon had affairs. And I know that he had affairs with his models. I mean, not just, I don't know how serious the affairs were. They were just flings or whether they were real affairs. But he, I know he had relations with his models. And I know that he wanted to get married twice. Yeah. Once was to Kathleen Bruce, who turned him down, actually, when he proposed to her. She turned him down. She married Scott of the Antarctic. She was, she was looking for a hero to marry. Wow. Her, diary is, her diary is amazing. I mean, you, you, I read her diaries. And 
you know, she, she, before she met Scott, she's she's looking for this hero who's going to father her children and all that. She she had this obsession with finding a hero, and poor Shannon wasn't heroic enough. <laughs> he did a he did a bust of her, but uh, he didn't meet the standards of, of a hero. And so she initially married Scott of the Antarctic. That's about as good as he gets. Yeah, as a hero. And then they had a son who was a famous botanist. Anyway, I uh, I was in correspondence with him too. So, but I've never heard anybody claim that Ricketts had any relationships with any yeah. of his models or any or any of his young proteges because he had he had young proteges. But I, as far as I know, they they were platonic. They were one sided affairs. Well, it sounds like your life has been deeply enriched by this. Oh, it was. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, this here is a sign of it. I mean, the, if I had never met Ricketts, just like Shannon, if Shannon hadn't met Ricketts, he would have he would have had a totally different life. If I hadn't met Ricketts, I would have had a totally yes. different life. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah. So then when I was working on Ricketts, I, I, one of Ricketts' friends was Lynn Philpott, who was uh, this wonderful painter. And uh, his niece became a friend of mine. She had some letters from Ricketts. So I was able to meet her and see the letters and all that. And she was very, very mild and quiet. And one day she said to me, she said, well, she said, Paul, do you think that once you finish the book on Ricketts, you might be interested in writing a book about my uncle? He would love to have a book about my uncle. And I said, Gabby, I, I'd love to write a butcher, about your uncle, but because Phil thought was very gay. I mean, he was openly gay. And, and I said, if, you go, if, I, if I write about your uncle, you must give me carte blanche. Okay? I, you mustn't say you can't say this, you can't say that. Oh, no, no, no problem, no problem. You have carte blanche. So I said, okay, when I finished the fish rickets, I will do Phil Pot. So when I finished rickets and it got published, I started working on Phil Pot. He was also a fascinating character. How long did that one take? It only took five or six years. Okay. And who's that published by? It's published by Ashgate, Ashgate Publishing in England. But it took me less time, partly because he wasn't such a he, he was a painter and sculptor. Bang, that was it. You know, he, yes. he wasn't book designer, theater designer, collector, blah blah blah. Okay, so that, that limited the the range. And Gabby spent all her life collecting papers for him, so she had an immense collection of his of his work and mm -hmm. catalogs and all that. So half the work was done for me. Yeah. And he was an interesting character, not as fascinating as Rickus, but an interesting man, kind, good-hearted man, mm -hmm. a good, good man. Gabby had a sister called Rosemary, and uh, I didn't know this when I published the book. I only found this afterwards, but Rosemary had the worst-tasted men you can imagine, and she married three men, all of whom, one of whom was worse than the next. I mean, you know, they were all bounders, as, as they call them in England. And one of her husbands had lost a lot of money. And Philpott sold his country estate at Barnard's to pay for her nephew's, her niece's husband's debts. His niece's husband's debts. He That's sold decent. his beautiful country home. Wow. To pay That's love. Rosemary's debts. Husband's debts. Gambling debts or whatever debts. I don't know what they were investing debts. Anyway, he had big debts. So it shows what a good man he was. Yeah. And he was a kind, good man. And so he was totally. He wasn't fascinating as, as Ricketts was, but I liked him. Yeah, I was really interested. You didn't in him. like Ricketts? Oh, I loved Ricketts. Yeah, but I liked Philpot. He, I, I liked him. He was a good man, kind man, giving, yeah. and he did have affairs with his models, but he never treated anybody badly. <laughs> he, never, he treated everybody generously. Mm. Later on, I discovered things that sh that Gabby didn't know because Gabby controlled what I knew mostly. But as I interviewed people, I found out things that Gabby didn't know. So I put them in the book. She made me take them out. <laughs> After she promised me that she would not interfere 
And, That's infuriating. Yeah, and, and I tried to persuade her. I said, Gabby, you know, it's the truth, and we want to give a true picture of your uncle, blah, blah, blah. So she didn't say anything. And then Gabby died, actually, shortly after. And then her executor phoned me and said, Paul, Gabby instructed me to tell you that you would take these passages out of the book, uh, this, 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 and this. And if you don't take them out, we will refuse your permission to quote Philpott's letters. <laughs> well, she, she's just protecting She him, was though. protective of her she's uncle. Protecting. And she didn't know those things, okay? When I, when I, yes, yes. When, when she gave me assurances, well, she Well, what things are they? Well, that he had, I met a man who, who, um, was married and had daughters, had two mm -hmm. daughters, and mm -hmm. he told me um, that Philpott had had a, a regular lover that he that he t he went back to in between his passionate affairs that oh, always finished yeah, badly. Yeah. He had a sort of standby lover, right, right. And so I thought, God, can I can I ask him who it was? And I, I was sort of dithering, what am I going to do? And because after I after my experience with Cecil Lewis, who shut me right up, and I started asking questions yes. about anything to do uh, with because he didn't want to. Yeah, because yeah. they they may have had something, and he was. I, I doubt it. I doubt it. They had you doubt it. Okay, yeah. but I mean, so, he's so defensive. He was touchy about that side of that, it. So yeah. maybe something did happen. He just doesn't want to go there. Yeah. Maybe not. So Who I knows? had a bad experience with Cecil. So I thought, well, can yeah. I? And so I said, yeah. "Do you think you could tell me who this regular lover was?" Yeah. He said, "Yes, it was me." <laughs> Who's this again? In the book, I have him as two different people. I have the regular lover. Yes. And I have him as a friend. And what's his name again? Uh, I can't remember his name at the oh, moment. Oh, okay. Okay. No, I can't really can't remember. I'll tell you if I remember. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. He told me, he said, for heaven's sakes, I have a wife. I have daughters. Yes, I yes. Don't, I don't want this to be known. No. But I was the regular lover. When Rick, between his big affairs, I, he'd come back to me. Isn't that interesting? I was never, he said I was never good-looking enough to be one of his passions, but right. I was good, it was okay to be in between. Yeah. But he was married at that time, and so he, you know, so he had other commitments, and then he had his two daughters. So it's odd, isn't it, the duplicitousness? Well, he, he, it was really his daughters he was worried about. He didn't yeah. want his daughters to know about no, that side no. of his thing. So in the book, I had to put him as two separate people, as the friend, and as the regular lover, yeah. who I never identify. Well, Gabby was furious at that. Even she, though you didn't identify him? Yeah, because she said, he spills the beans on my uncle, but he covers his own tracks. Right. So he said, you, she wanted me to, to reveal his name, but I had promised I would not, so I, I said, I can't, Gabby. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I promised him I would not reveal who he was, so I have to, yeah. but anyway, she was not happy with that at all, but she didn't make me take that out. Right. But there was, there was another thing that she told, Oh, Are yeah. we on the record now or off? Well, as long as you, uh, the name is not given, I don't mind if that's... Well, yeah, and you didn't give me the name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. But are we okay with everything that you've said? Yeah. or except the one that I told you not to repeat. Yeah, okay. Um, so she, so uh, there, was two, there were two things I had to take out yeah. uh, before the book was published. Okay. But, but she also left money uh, uh, in the, her will to have more illustrations. She left 10,000 pounds... To put more illustrations into your book. Yeah. That's, yeah, okay. okay. Because yeah. she wanted the book to be as, because she had, she had, she was unmarried. Yeah. And her uncle had become her life's work. Interesting. Okay, and so she was interested in the, in, in making the best possible book. For, for the book, it's got an awful lot of color illustrations, you know, for, for, for the price it is, because, uh, because of Gabby's 10,000 pound bequest to the, prop, to the, for, for more, illustrations. That's fascinating. Yeah. What's the name of that book again? Lynn Philpott. That's, that's just his name. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Right. yeah. Okay. okay, final question. 
from what you've been telling me, what's your the best advice you can give to someone who uh, is thinking about writing a biography of someone? Well, uh, don't get obsessed. <laughs> That's good advice. <laughs> I, it was my mistake to get so obs to become so committed to it and yeah. to be so involved in it, so that when it was in danger of not being published, I got really sick. Yeah. I ended up in hospital. Yeah. With the, yeah. and they said if we don't if we don't settle you down, yeah. we're going to remove a third of your colon. It's it's thirteen years of your life. No wonder you're so upset. Yeah. But I had one friend who was very negative about it. And they kept telling me, you'll never get that published. You'll oh, never, yeah, get, that published. You'll yeah, never yeah. get that published. Yeah, yeah. No one's interested in Charles Ricketts. Who's, who's ever heard about Charles Ricketts? Yeah. No one's going to publish that book and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, I mean, that really devastated me at the time. Uh, yeah. it, it's, at a time, I was very vulnerable. Yeah. And having him harp on and on and on about how no one would ever want to publish Charles Ricketts uh, it was really devastating. But anyway, I mean, I, uh, it ended up very happily with the Oxford University yeah, Press. I could, it helped, me get, the, produced. It helped yeah. me get the job in Moncton, actually, because, I Did mean, it? Yeah, okay. because when I came to Moncton, I applied for the job. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I had, a bub, uh, I had a, just published a biography, by, which was published by Oxford University Press. You, yes. can, you can't get better than That's that. <laughs> yes. So um, I, I got the job at the university right away. So what about the advice? I, I just barged in there. Well, I think that the, the prep, the prep is, is, is everything. And Rupert Hart Davis told me two things, because he'd written biographies. He'd written a, a biography of Hugh Walpole. So he said, Paul, you have to do two things. First of all, you have to create a chronology of his life. Okay? So you start from you know, all the letters, all the information you get, you know, so you know what he was doing in January of, uh, 18. Oh, so very fine-tuned. Fine yeah, so you... you you, you create this biography, this chronology of all his life from the beginning to the end and every sort of every date of every letter every you know everything he publishes everything that you put it in there so it will keep you from going wrong because even though you don't follow chronology absolutely I mean a biography is chronological in basic but there are certain areas where you dealt you deal with a whole section and then you go backwards to deal with a difference like especially someone like Ricketts who was a book designer theater designer you couldn't mix them all together so you did theater designer book designer blah, blah, in separate sectors but you had to cover a number of years in each one so he said doing a chronology will keep you from making serious errors and the second thing is you must have a really good outline of your book have a, before you start writing have a really good outline so what what's that mean every chapter breaking down broken down by subject, by theme, by, you know, by, by matter that's going to be dealt with, you know, by incidents that are going to be dealt with. So have a very, really detailed outline, and then the book writes itself. So I followed his advice. Oxford accepted the book, but they made me cut it by a third. It's already 400 pages, but it was originally 600. 600. That it, must it, have been painful. It, no, it made it better. Okay. Uh, it was more concise. It, it removed repetition. I also had a wonderful friend, Paul Chipchase, who was an editor at Cambridge University Press. He went through it and cleaned it up. It, it needed cleaning up because I'm not very good at detail. You know, I, I'm good at the, the, the big picture and drawing you, the lines. You are good at detail. There's some great detail in it. Yeah, there. but he helped clean up okay. a lot of mess in my details. Okay. I mean, that was his job. He's, he was a professional editor at the Cambridge University Press, but he, he spent weeks cleaning up my, my, my manuscript. Okay. And so I owe him a lot. And so I would, that's the two things you have to do. Do a chronology and do a really detailed outline 
before you start writing. That was Rupert Hart Davis who told me this, and who was who himself was, you know, a great publisher, editor, edited Oscar Wilde's letters, published a biography of Hugh Walpole, you know, edited many books. Great letter writer too. Yes, and he was executor for many many writers, you know, uh, Hugh Walpole and uh, many others. Okay. And uh, it's funny thing was when, because Hugh Walpole, at that time, you know, in the eighties, seventies, uh, and eighties, you know, was was one would have thought was, was pretty much forgotten about, but Rupert said not at all. He said, that's what we live on. We live on the royalties from his from his books. That's one of, one of our main sources of income mm -hmm. in his retirement was the, was the as, as the executor for the Ewell Paul estate, he was also entitled to receive the, the, the uh, royalties. So that's what he was living on. And Rupert was a really nice man. He, you know, he helped me a lot and in fact, when he, he had a, a, a small costume design by Ricketts, and when he died, he left it to me in his will. Again, another kindness. Eh? Yeah, yeah. But I, I, when I, I, had all, I had six or seven uh, Ricketts costume designs, not the finished, beautiful finished ones, but working designs. Yeah. And when I gave a bunch of drawings to the Beaver Book, I gave that along with the, the one that Rupert gave me to the Beaver Book. Well, thanks for your kindness in talking oh, to me this evening. It's, you're, you're letting me indulge myself in a subject that I love. Uh, well, so it's, it's fun uh, for me, too. Well, and it's lovely to hear about such a wonderful character. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I've been speaking to Paul Delaney, who is a retired professor of English yeah. and uh, currently working on... Acadian history. How... Genealogy elucidates history. <laughs> Very good. Thanks again. Welcome. Pleasure. Okay. Oh, that was fun. It wasn't as painful as I thought it might good. be. Good. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was great.